0: Back in July of 2010, Bethel Church celebrated our 50th anniversary. And uh, for this celebration, we all gathered together over at Herring Auditorium, and uh, we decided to invite back uh, three of the former uh, senior pastors. And so I've got this picture that's actually very special to me. Um, Here we have, uh, from the left, we've got Paul Holmes. Many of you know Paul Uh, And then Vernon Krause, next to him in the striped shirt, is the founding pastor. And then Hokey Moore, uh, next to him, who is quite a character. Uh, Hokey has since gone home to be with the Lord, and I had a chance to visit with him personally uh, in the rest home that he was in uh, before he died. Uh, And then yours truly on the end there, and I'm looking at that picture thinking, my face was a lot skinnier then, so... (laughs) This was a really fun gathering when we got these uh, guys together, and um, one of the things that we did is I had a chance to interview them and just talk about the time, the season that they were at the church and their leadership and kind of ask them how they saw God at work in the church during the time that they were here, um, and these guys were hilarious. I don't know if you remember, especially it seemed like the older you got, the funnier you got, and uh, Hokey in particular was absolutely cracked me up, and he was teasing Vernon. And one of the things he teased Vernon about, he said that Vernon only has one sermon, but he could get to it from any passage in Scripture. And I thought that was hilarious. And that sort of came to mind this week as I was reading over chapter 3 of Acts, where we we find the Apostle Peter delivering what is only his second recorded sermon after the arrival of the Holy Spirit— the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And wouldn't you know it, but it sounds an awful lot like his first sermon. Very, very similar. Um, you guys know when you're, when you're watching or listening to a new pastor kind of learning how to preach and learning their craft, uh, it, it, can, it can be painful. It can be a little difficult as they figure it out. You guys had to suffer through my learning, and I still give you some awkward moments at times, I know. Um and I'll even go through a few of these guys that you might have uh, experienced this with. Jeff Welch used to be our uh, youth pastor 15 years ago. Good friend. I talked to him about twice a month. And Jeff had sort of a nervous habit or a mannerism. One of his was he would pace the stage. I don't know if you guys remember that. Back and forth, back and forth. He'd just wear the carpet out. And the other thing that he would do is he would use this repeated question, what does that look like and what does that mean? Do you guys remember that, those of you who are around? And so these were some of his, his mannerisms. Um, Keith Payne, uh, who served as our worship pastor uh, for uh, over 20 years, um, and he is just an excellent theologian, an excellent thinker. And when he was in seminary, his homilytics professor had great expectations of him. And so when he got up to preach his first sermon after he had finished, the professor came up to him afterwards and said, Mr. Payne, that was a great disappointment. (laughs) But he still came and pastored for two decades anyways, right? I have my own mannerisms, and some of them I think I've outgrown. I'm probably going to accidentally slip back into them today because I'm mentioning it. But one of them, it would be interesting to ask you guys, which ones you notice and which ones you recognize. Um, but some of you will remember when I first started preaching, one of my first mannerisms, mannerisms was this. I would just sit here and wind my wedding ring around my finger. And people would come up and be like, well, you got to stop that. I can't even listen to you. Another one I would do, and you guys probably have all seen this one plenty, which is, which is this. And my wife's like, you got to stop scratching your beard. Uh, the other one that I learned that I did a lot I wasn't aware of it But back in the days when we were hosting a college group, the college students let me know that I used the word resonate almost every week, and they were needling me about that. So those are some of mine. Uh, Here I am doing it. Did you see that? Man, okay, hands on the podium. Uh, Paul Holmes uh, talked about one of the guys in his homiletics class when he was in seminary, and this guy's nervous habit was when he was preaching was to unzip and zip his zipper, I don't know how that guy got hired anywhere. And the point I want to make is just, it could be a lot worse, so. The Apostle Peter here, who is preaching only his second sermon or second recorded sermon, uh, he seems to stick pretty close to the original script here, Uh, almost like a new preacher, a nervous new preacher. And I can imagine, you know, an old grouchy gal from the city kind of coming up to him afterwards saying, I already heard this one. Don't you have any new material? You know, I can almost imagine this. It's remarkably similar to his first sermon, but uh, one place where it is different is in the attention getter, right? Um, You guys are probably pretty used to the fact when we get up to preach, it's our habit to kind of open the sermon to get your attention with a statistic or a quotation or a picture of, you know, four senior pastors, former senior pastors. Well, three of them are former pastors. I'm still here, by God's grace. Uh, but we open our message that way, to grab your attention. And uh, in Peter's first sermon, the attention-getter was pretty well done for him, wasn't it? The outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the sound, this visual of what looked like tongues of fire resting on individuals, and then the phenomenon of speaking in tongues, in foreign tongues, such that visitors to, the, to Jerusalem could hear the glories of God, the wonders of God being proclaimed in their native tongue. And that got everybody's attention, and Peter used that experience to proclaim the full, you know, the full gospel. In his second sermon, it's what we're looking at today, it is a miraculous healing that God does through he and, and John that grabs everybody's attention, and once again, it gives him the opportunity to proclaim the gospel. So look with me in chapter 3, verse 1. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. So the first point that I want to make is this. Gospel conversations can begin from many different starting points. Uh, I want to look at this passage as kind of uh, instructive on how we as Christ's witnesses Uh, might might get some examples on on how we get into gospel proclamation or gospel conversation, how it is we serve as witnesses uh, for Christ. Um, In our our most recent passages, you know, there, there have been two different things, two different sort of phenomenon, right? The speaking in tongues, and in this case, the healing. And when these happen, Peter strives to get toward the gospel. He tries to take the conversation from this to that. He gets from the experiential phenomenon to that which is truly phenomenal, what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And that's how he moves things along. Um, And I'm using this phrase here, gospel conversation, and I'm using it strategically. I I introduced this to you guys many months ago, and I I think it's an excellent phrase, and and I want to, again, just keep it in front of us, because oftentimes we think about evangelism As sort of an event, something we do all at once in this one sitting. But I think a way we ought to think about evangelism, especially in our culture today, is that it's going to be an ongoing process, a conversation that happens over time, a dialogue. Probably many of us know somebody who is sort of a natural evangelist. You know, they can get to the gospel from almost any starting point. They share Christ almost daily. Uh, Even if I were to, uh, you know, ask you guys from among our own congregation, who do you know that's really good at that? You could give a couple of names, and probably all of us would give some of the same names. Um, But not all of us are gifted in evangelism. However, All of us, if we claim to be Christians, are called to be witnesses for Christ. And so sometimes we have to do this thing which is unnatural for us. And the good news is, it is a art, it is a craft that we can grow in. We can improve in this. We should not say, it's just not my gift, so I don't do it. It may not come as naturally to us as others, but we're all called to be witnesses for Christ. And so I want to give you an example um, from my life just of this last week where I had an opportunity to have what I'm calling a gospel conversation to show you sort of what I'm talking about here. Uh, there was this woman in town. I was talking with her. I don't think she's a believer. And she shared with me that she and her husband are going to Boston. And I lit up. Oh, Boston, one of my favorite cities. I love going there. I told her I'd been there many times And she said, oh, my goodness, can you tell us some things that we should do? You bet. I would be happy to. And so I started sketching out some of my favorite things. And um, one of the favorite places that I visited uh, in Boston is the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. Have any any of you been there or seen that? Two of you. All right. We need to take a field trip, I think. It was just a really fun place to go, and so I was sharing with her about this. And I remembered some pictures that I had on my phone from my my visit. So this was the picture I showed her as I described sort of the different pieces of art or, that are there and what it's like. Um, there is this beautiful picture of what's called a retable. This is an altar piece, uh, and um, and I just shared, what I shared with her was, as a Christian, I found this very moving. Because not only does it capture the life and the death of Christ in these various scenes, but at the end, in the far panel, there is, the, uh, there is sculpted into it the patron who commissioned this piece and they wanted their own likeness sketched into it, not in sort of a hubris kind of way, but in a way of saying, Christ died for me. And I am here complicit in his death. But I got to just, just we're just talking about Boston in a trip and things to do and things to see. But I was able just to say, as a Christian, this was very moving to me because of this. I just dropped a line or two. Now, some of you would say, Eric, you didn't share the whole gospel. And to that, I would say, you're right. I haven't shared the whole gospel yet. But I'm starting a conversation with this person that I hope I'll get to add to over time. In that particular setting, if I had dropped the whole thing on her, it would have been sort of inappropriate or oversharing in that instance. So I'm planting a seed, and I want to come back to it, to it later. So for me, this was just an opportunity to be a witness for Christ, publicly identified as a Christian, Uh, someone who believes in the life and the death and the sacrifice of, of Christ. And so this is kind of a tool I want to add to your toolbox. Don't feel like you've got to get the whole thing out every time. Be willing to have an incremental conversation, even giving partial and appropriate answers. And I think that's a lot more of a compelling witness than, let me give you this alternative approach. You're at the gas station, fueling up your car, wincing because the dial is flying around and the price is going up. And you look down on the ground and you see some cash. Oh. And you go to pick it up, and it's not cash. It's some little booklet that is made to look like cash. And you open it up, and the first thing it says is, see, you're a sinner. You are about to steal. You're going to hell. You need Jesus. Now, I got to tell you, is that compelling to you? Is that winsome? It's just like poking somebody in the eye, right? So I I don't find that particular approach to be winsome at all. I I sort of equate that with like the as-seen-on-TV products, you know, not interested, no thank you. I think a much wiser approach is to consider our gospel witness a conversation that will take place over time incrementally. Uh, Gregory Kokel, one of our CTF speakers, has a great line on this. He says, Christians need to quit trying to hit home runs with the gospel. Sometimes we just need to get on base. And I I like that uh, imagery. Um, One one sort of resource or tool that I would would direct you to is a book by Randy Newman called Corner Conversations. It's It's in your notes. And it's just kind of a resource to help people consider how do I get from this situation to the gospel? And it shows you just lots of different angles uh, on, on how you might get there. Um, another, another tool that I'd kind of want to put in your bag is to ask yourself this question, what does the gospel have to say about this? So as you're talking with someone and you're hearing from them, just kind of let that ruminate in your mind. And very often, that's when you're going to find your angle to be able to be a witness for Christ. What does the gospel have to say about what it is that they're sharing with you? Um, One author has referred to this kind of thing as gospel fluency. (laughs) Gospel fluency. And that's a great phrase. I really like that. Uh, In the same way that when we try to learn a a foreign language, one of the best ways to do it uh, is not just through a book or an app or something like that, but it's when we're in sort of an immersive situation, right? You can learn a little bit in a class or a course or a book, but when you go to a foreign country and you're immersed in the language, it happens a lot faster that you become fluent in it. And the same is true with sharing the gospel. The more we articulate it, the more we are looking to speak about it, the more we give incremental approaches, partial answers, the more gospel conversation is a part of our lives and immersive, the more likely we are to become fluent with it able to get to it quickly from all kinds of different conversations. Or I'll say it in the negative. If you never share the gospel, you're never going to be good at sharing the gospel. It comes with time and and practice. So in our passage here, this man who was born lame is healed, and questions come up, and Peter demonstrates some pretty good gospel fluency, as you would expect from an apostle. And he gets to the point where he gets to share the whole gospel with them. Uh, because this occasion, frankly, calls for it. Verse 11. While the man held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the palace called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob the God of our, of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life. What a phrase. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this by faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you can all see. So the second point I want to make here is this, that wise gospel conversation will contextualize our message to our audience. Uh, In this particular instance, Peter is preaching to Jews in Jerusalem, predominantly Jews. And so it makes sense for him to reference the patriarchs, Abraham, uh, Isaac, and Jacob, and to refer to them as our fathers. And then eventually he gets on to Moses, and then Samuel, and all the prophets. Peter is showing to this Jewish community that Jesus is the Messiah, the one that the people have been waiting for, that he was not another, that he was not something novel or an imposter. He was the promised one, the holy one, the one that they have been looking and waiting for. And so this method of witness here is very fitting given his audience's background, their expectations, and their knowledge, and also bold considering their particular sin. But I'm not going to use this identical approach when I'm sharing the gospel with my friend up on campus at UAF or with a co-worker in a warehouse that I work, or in the teacher's lounge. I'm probably not going to use this approach because, first of all, not being a first-century Jew, they're not looking for a Messiah who fits the billing of prophecy. Secondly, it's very unlikely that they know the Bible well, right? But biblical illiteracy is rampant in the church, even more so in the community at large. Um, I mean, one verse the community at large knows really well is judge not, lest ye be judged, right? They all, they all have that one down in the King James, no less. They got it. But there's a general biblical literacy in the community, so to reference immediately prophets and, and patriarchs and all of these things is just not going to be the best starting point. And a skill that we need to develop as witnesses for Christ is I think first and foremost that we would be good listeners, And that we would use good questions to draw out this person that we care for, that we love, so that we might share the gospel with them and find out where the right starting point is. One day, a seven-year-old daughter in the car asked her mom the question, Mom, where did I come from? "'Mother was perplexed and alarmed. "'She had never in her wildest imaginations "'prepared herself to answer her seven-year-old "'asking about the birds and the bees. "'She stumbled through some awkward attempt "'at an age-appropriate version, "'and when she finished rambling through the talk, "'she glanced up in the rearview mirror "'to see her seven-year-old looking frightened "'and uncomfortable about what had just been said. "'And she responded to her mom, "'Billy says he's from Connecticut.' The point of this little parable here is mom overshared. She answered a question that wasn't really being asked. Frightened her child. Sometimes as Christians, well-meaning, we can overanswer. We're sometimes answering questions not being asked, not even wanting, they're not even wanting to hear it yet. And when we do that, I think we oftentimes drive people away. We want to move towards full gospel articulation But I think when we do it with patience, as a process, incrementally, it shows a lot more gentleness and respect. And that's why uh, I really love that phrase, gospel conversation. Now, some of you might ask the question, Eric, is there a precedent in Scripture for what you're talking about when you say contextualizing our message? I know that phrase can make some people nervous. Um, I am not talking about compromising the essence of the gospel, We can contextualize our message without compromising uh, the gospel. But I would say, yes, there is a biblical precedent for doing this. Uh, I'll start with just the gospel writers themselves. You consider how they frame their gospel account of the life of Christ with their audience. Mark is writing to persecuted Christians in Rome. And so as he articulates the life and ministry of Christ. He shows it in ways that have apologetic value for that particular audience. Matthew's writing to the Jewish community, so he begins with the genealogy, and he peppers his account with prophecy that is fulfilled in Christ because that's their starting point that resonates with them, to use my word again. And Luke has a different approach altogether. He's writing to uh, Gentiles. So he focuses, when he talks about Christ, he focuses on the miracles and the power of Christ and also his compassion for those who are marginalized. So they're talking about the same life and ministry, but they contextualize it for their audience. Uh, The Apostle Paul is probably the king of contextualization. Uh, and, And you can see this if you want to. We'll get to it later in this series. But In Acts 13, he's talking to to Bible believers, and so he uses their knowledge as he gives a witness for Christ. In Acts 14, he's talking to sort of blue-collar pagans, and so his argument there, or his gospel witness there, is from the natural world, turning from uh, worthless things to the living God who made the world. Later on in Acts 17, he's talking to educated pagans in Athens at the Areopagus. And they're doing all this philosophizing. So in that, that attempt, he uses philosophy. So he's kind of the king of contextualization. But when I say that, and again, if it makes you nervous, here's what I mean by it. I mean knowing your audience, understanding your starting point with them, tailoring your gospel conversation to their need or question or understanding, and recognizing that this conversation will take place over time. In fact, your conversation with them may end And somebody else may pick it up down the line, right? Verse 17. Now, fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. Repent, then, and turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Messiah, who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything, as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. For Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from their people. Indeed, beginning with Samuel, all the prophets who have spoken have foretold these days. And you are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, through your offspring, all peoples on earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant, this is referring to Jesus, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. So what I want to show you here is that when I talk about Paul being sort of the king of contextualization, actually both Peter and Paul are doing it. Peter is contextualizing his gospel message to these Jews in Jerusalem, where Paul, who is an apostle to the Gentiles, approaches uh, his gospel presentation differently. And so, interestingly, here for Peter's message, um, it's almost accusatory for these guys, right? And he's able to kind of needle them on this because of their knowledge and their background. They're, they're a Jewish audience, they already have a concept for God, they're God fearing. They're actually in the temple. They're here for prayer, such that they're able to witness this miracle. They know the scriptures. They're even looking for the Messiah. In fact, the reason they killed him, because they thought he was an imposter, they were actually trying to protect the purity of their faith. So Jesus, or excuse me, Peter uses all that he knows about this group as he angles the gospel message to them. He contextualizes it to them, and he shows their actions and their culpability and calls them to repentance. Now, the other thing, the thing that some of you might be asking then is, okay, if we're only going to be giving sometimes partial answers or an incremental approach, what does it look like when we have given the whole gospel message? What is the whole gospel in a sense? And that's the final points here. Complete gospel articulation will eventually occlude, and I'm going to kind of lay these out as, as three couplets, six, six points, three couplets. You could arrange this differently, but to me there's some logical priority here. The first, is, the first two are these, the person of Christ promised and the person of Christ revealed. I think a clear understanding of the whole gospel when it's fully articulated a person will understand that Jesus is not an afterthought. He's not God's plan B. God didn't say, wow, I didn't see that coming. I guess, you know, clean up an aisle six, got uh, to send the son. It, it wasn't an afterthought. Uh, from the third chapter of Genesis, we see that Jesus is the promised seed of the woman. And from Revelation thirteen eight, he is described as slain from the foundations of the world. The redemptive plan was in the mind of God before any of us were even here. This wasn't an afterthought. So so the person of Christ is one who was promised on virtually every page of scripture, whether it's a prophecy or foreshadowing or an institution or a type, we constantly see God's people prepared for Jesus. Um, I I love Edmund Clowney's uh, quote about the Bible. He says, the Bible is the greatest storybook not because it is full of wonderful stories, but because it tells one great story, the story of Jesus. And so I think a full gospel articulation, when it's fully out, a person would understand that this Jesus who came was one who was promised. He was promised and he was revealed. Um, secondly, I think a full gospel articulation will include these two points. The person of Christ crucified for our sins. And the person of Christ raised for our justification. Again, Christ's death wasn't an accident or an afterthought. His life wasn't taken from him. He tells us that he laid it down of his, his own accord. And, and his, some have said, there are some, there's a writer today in particular, his name is Richard Rohr, and here's the heresy that he's throwing around, that Christ's death was only exemplary. It was just an example of selflessness. As absolute heresy, do not believe that, do not accept it. Christ's death was substantive. He atones for us. He paid a real penalty. The righteous wrath of God was satisfied when Christ died as our substitute. As human, he's able to represent us. As divine, his sacrifice is of infinite worth. But then he conquers sin and death in his resurrection. Uh, He brought death to death. I love that phrase. Or as Romans says, he was raised to life for our justification. R.C. Sproul describes that particular verse in Romans in a very helpful way. He says that the resurrection of Jesus justifies him to us so that God can justify us to himself. In other words, in his resurrection, he showed himself to be who he was. He proved it. It was evidence, if it hadn't happened, then we would still be in our sins, Paul says. If there is no resurrection, we're still in our sins. But it verifies who he was and such that he is able to justify us to the Father. And ascending to heaven, he is now glorified, or as Peter calls him, our living hope. Not hope in a dead man, but in a risen and living Savior who will return one day and give us what I like to call bodies to die for. I can use one of those because my body is deteriorating. And I think the most, um, one of the most beautiful things that John Stott has a great quote about. Sort of uh, Peter's second sermon here, and he he calls it. He says that the most remarkable thing about Peter's second sermon is its Christ-centeredness, which I think is a good word for us as we are trying to be witnesses. Uh, for Christ in this world, that may our gospel conversations be Christ-centered, constantly coming back to this. People will have all kinds of questions about the age of the earth or the problem of evil or this or that, but Christ-centeredness is the issue. We want to keep coming back to this. Okay, the last two things here. The person of Christ is returning to judge. And the person who is outside of Christ needs to respond in repentance and faith. Um, Some of you are looking at that judgment one going, hmm, I don't know, in gospel conversation, that's a tough one to get to. And it is. But at some point, it becomes necessary. People, if there's no coming judgment, then the death of Christ is worthless or pointless, so to speak. Um, Or I'll say it this way. This is kind of the way I articulate it. God is not good if he does not judge. He is not good if he does not judge. Ultimately, if God just turns a a blind eye to evil and to sin in the world and just lets it persist endlessly, then God, who could do something about it, is just a moral monster allowing it to persist. So it is a good thing that he judges. Now, this Sometimes the secular person who sort of objects to the existence of God, sometimes they'll object on the basis of the problem of evil, right? They'll say, how can there be a God? A God who is all-powerful, who is all-loving, when all of this evil is going on. And when I hear that objection from someone, I kind of light up. Because I think that's an open door for the gospel, I think they have made some keen observations. They've just come to some wrong conclusions. And now I get to fill in the gaps with my gospel conversation to them. And I can say, you're right. If, there is, if their evil persists in the world, then, then that sort of causes us to question if there is a God. But what if I were to tell you that God is coming back one day to judge all evil and to purge it from this world? That's essentially what you're asking for and then i mean they'll probably hesitate at that a little bit and then you can go on and say but in the grace and the mercy of god he has provided his son who died as a substitute for our sins so that the wrath of god does not fall on me but falls on christ instead the gospel solves the problem of evil and it's it's a great way to just get right into that gospel conversation Then we can also share with them um, this passage. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So what you describe as uh, the problem of evil, what you're witnessing is the grace of God who has given you as long as window as possible. But he has been gracious to provide a way of escape in Jesus Christ. Now, I have sort of, I'm going to give you just two more tools really quickly, uh, just some things that I do to try to generate gospel conversations. Because you might think that as a pastor, I have all kinds of opportunities to do this. That's not the case. You know, if I'm on an airplane and somebody asks me, what do I do? And I say, I'm a pastor. Like, that's it. Conversation's over. Um, If I'm trying to be crafty and I want to talk to them, then I'll change my answer a little bit. And they say, what do you do? And I'll say, I work for a religious nonprofit. <laughs> then we might get a couple more questions and I, I can get going. If I want to sleep, I just say, I'm a pastor at a conservative Baptist church. <laughs> Done. But what I try to do to generate gospel conversations even around town, two things. One is I try to use the phrase as a Christian, I, I try to use that to describe maybe the actions or decisions that I might make so that somebody knows that that's the place that I'm living from. So even as I spoke with this woman earlier, talking about this this piece of art that I had seen, as a Christian, this was very moving for me. That that opens up some conversation. Uh, Another thing that I do, and some of you know this about me, I carry a book around with me wherever I go. Um, And I try to carry a Christian book or something like that, because people will ask me, you know, what is this book, The Story of Reality, by Gregory Kokel? Oh, let me tell you about it. And I can start a conversation about the fact that I'm a Christian and how this sort of unpacks the faith and and the worldview of Christianity. So those are just a couple little tactics um, that that I try to utilize. But, But here's what I would want you to leave with this morning. You need to be strategic about having gospel conversations. You've got to be looking for them. You've got to want them. And I would just remind you of the grace that has been poured out for you in the person of Christ. If you know Jesus as your Savior, this is your hope and your security and your future, how can you keep that good news to yourself? Good news gets out. We need to look for occasions to just have gospel conversations, even if we're just starting them incrementally over time. And then lastly, some of you are here this morning And now you have heard the whole gospel. You know what God has done for you in Christ to reconcile you to himself. And this last point is for you. You need to respond in repentance and faith. It is not simply enough to know that Christ came or to believe that there is a God. We have to entrust ourselves to God and the provision that he has made for our sin in the person of Jesus Christ. We do that through repentance and faith. And so if that's where you're at right now, I want to close in a prayer. And if you're not yet a Christian and you know that this is a time where you need to move from believing that to believing in and entrusting yourself to God, then I'm going to offer a prayer that I would hope you would pray right where you are. So would you bow your heads, please? God, I recognize that I am a sinner. That I have inherited the guilt of Adam's sin and I have sinned myself. I recognize that that is a violation against your holiness and your righteousness. And because you are coming to judge the world and purge it from evil, then I am vulnerable. So, Lord, I turn from my sin, I repent of it, and I take refuge in Jesus Christ, receiving him as my substitute and my Savior. Forgive me and cleanse me, reconcile me to you. May I learn to live as your follower and your disciple and to worship you for the rest of my life. Lord, the gospel is such good news and I pray that we would never grow weary of it or tired or complacent. God, I pray that you would even just wreck our hearts to think of the grace and the mercy that you had for us, driven by your love. We were headed for destruction. And because of your mercy, we're headed for heaven. Thank you for that. Lord, help us to be your witnesses in this world for the good news that has changed our lives and our eternity. May we have enough love for our neighbors and for you to introduce them to you through gospel conversations. Give us strength to do this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.